Hello and welcome to Since the World's Been Turning. This podcast series is a journey through history, one guided by the lyrics of Billy Joel's song, We Didn't Start the Fire. This episode takes us to Egypt in 1956, when the nationalisation of the Suez Canal by General Nasser led to the mother of all conspiracies. Behind closed doors, Great Britain and France made a secret plot with Israel to gain control of the waterway and retain their influence in the Arab world. The conspiracy spelled the end of British Prime Minister Anthony Eden's political career, and the Suez Canal crisis is considered the nail in the coffin of the British Empire. As we explore this topic, we're joined once more by special guest Khaled Fahmy, Sultan Qaboos bin Said, Professor of Modern Arabic Studies at the University of Cambridge. It's 1956, 11 years after the end of World War II, and the world stage is changing. A new type of conflict, the Cold War, is raging between the Soviet Union and Western powers. In Russia, Nikita Khrushchev has replaced Stalin as head of state, and he's in the process of consolidating his power. The mood in the United States is buoyant as the nation experiences a period of prosperity under President Dwight Eisenhower. But Americans are also fearful of the threats of communism and nuclear war. France, along with other European nations, sustained huge losses in the previous decade. It's still rebuilding its economy and trying to suppress the independence movement in Algeria. Meanwhile, Great Britain, the nation that once ruled the waves, is also losing its global influence, particularly in the Middle East. India, the British Empire's jewel in the crown, has been independent since 1947. The following year, in 1948, Britain's mandate for Palestine ended. The State of Israel became independent and the first Arab-Israeli war began. And now, a charismatic nationalist leader has emerged in Egypt, further disrupting the status quo. His name is General Gamal Abdel Nasser, and he's risen to power since the fall of the monarchy in the early 1950s. It's perhaps inevitable that he would eventually try to gain control of the Suez Canal, which has been vital to trade in the area since the construction of it in 1869. The history of the canal is complex, but it's key to understanding the events that follow. Our guest, Professor Khaled Fahmy, gives us an overview of the construction of the canal and French and later British involvement in the project. The canal um, has a long history. The idea of connecting the Mediterranean to the Red Sea is a very old idea. Actually, from as, uh, as ancient as ancient Egypt, there has been attempts to link the Nile to the Red Sea. The first such attempt was in the reign of the pharaoh Snowser III in uh, 1850, uh, before the Common Era, then under the Persians in the 8th century, and then under the Abbasids in the 
uh, sorry, the, the, the Abbasids in the eighth century, before then the Persians in the sixth century, before the common era. But, but the idea of linking the Mediterranean to the Red Sea directly started with the French occupation of Egypt under Napoleon Bonaparte in 1798. But because the engineers measured the levels of the waters of both seas incorrectly, so that idea was dismissed and the whole project was deemed unfeasible. But the, the, the present Suez Canal uh, was uh, the brainchild of French uh, diplomat Ferdinand de Lesseps, who used to be uh, the French consul in Egypt uh, in the 1830s. And then in the 1850s, he reached an agreement with Egypt's ruler, Said Pasha, to uh, found a company, an international company, and to start constructing the, uh, the canal. This agreement between these two men uh, was really detrimental to Egypt because according to this agreement, Egypt was uh, obliged to provide all the labor necessary for the uh, construction. And over the years, the subsequent years, estimates uh, say that uh, a quarter of a million Egyptian workers were dragged to serve in, the, in this huge project. Uh, Egypt also initially was forced to buy the shares of the company when a few investors stepped forward to, uh, to buy them. Uh, that put enormous pressures on the Egyptian economy and Egyptian finances and was a very important reason why Egypt eventually declared its bankruptcy in uh, 1876. As a result of this, Britain stepped forward and bought Egypt's share uh, in the company, which was up to that time really a French project. And that increased the tension between Britain and, and France. The company, the, the, the canal itself was opened in 1869 for maritime navigation, and it immediately transformed the very nature of maritime navigation because this 100 miles of the canal across the desert between the Mediterranean and the Red Sea cut 5,000 miles of the trip between uh, Europe and uh, Asia. So instead of the ships going around Africa, now they could sail through the Mediterranean uh, and from the Mediterranean, they sailed through the newly constructed canal to the Red Sea and got a considerable amount of distance and time. So uh, the canal became a very important maritime route, especially for Britain, because of course the jewel of the crown in the, of, the Egypt, of the British uh, uh, empire was India. And the Suez Canal became a very important uh, artery of imperial communications uh, linking London to Bombay. So uh, that is a brief history of the, uh, the company and the canal. From 1882, Britain occupied Egypt in what's commonly called a veiled protectorate. 
though technically the country was still part of the Ottoman Empire. When the First World War took place in 1914 and the Ottoman Empire joined the Central Powers, Britain formally took control. British rule was supposed to end in the 1920s when King Fuad I took power, but a condition of Egypt's independence was that British troops could stay in the country to protect the Suez Canal. In practice, Britain not only controlled the canal zone, but exerted a powerful influence over the country's domestic affairs. During this time, Egypt also becomes a bustling multicultural hub for trade. Tensions between Egyptian nationalists and British troops simmer throughout the first half of the 20th century. In the 1930s, as the world prepares for World War II, Egyptian discontent becomes more and more pronounced. Egypt is officially neutral in the war until 1945, but from 1940, the country is of great strategic importance to the Allies' North Africa campaign. Heavy pressure is put on Egyptians to cooperate, particularly when a German attack on the canal seems likely in 1942. In the Abdeen Palace incident, British soldiers surround the palace and essentially force the young King Farouk to change his government in favour of someone friendlier to their cause. Khaled Fami talks about how the complicated situation looked in the first half of the 20th century. There is a nationalist movement in Egypt agitating to declare Egypt independence. The British kept on saying, wait until the war is over. When the war is over, a big revolution erupted in 1919, asking for independence. The result of which is that Britain gave Egypt a truncated, limited independence in 1922, and Egypt was declared a kingdom in 1923. The king was King Fuad, who died in 1936, followed by... Farouk, a young king at that time. So basically what we have is a limited independence. Uh, there is indeed a parliament. Egypt is a parliamentary democracy, but there is a foreign army occupying it. And there is a very uh, clogged political system engineered by the British to guarantee their continued influence uh, in Egypt. So the young king uh, found really a, a, an ungovernable country. Uh, there's a British occupation. Uh, there's a clogged political system that cannot take care of the country's growing economic demographic uh, problems. And there is a nationalist movement agitating to get rid of the British once and for all. And a political system that cannot really answer these questions. The result is that there are continued uh, uncertainty and instability of the political system and demonstrations throughout the 1930s, 1940s. Um, and it is in that situation that we start seeing a new, new ideas, and especially within the armed forces, uh, to find the radical solution to these problems. Gamal Abdel Nasser, who will become one of the most important Arab figures of the 20th century, is born in Alexandria towards the end of the First World War. 
His father is a postal clerk, while his mother is the daughter of a coal merchant. He attends good schools, and he's well-read, intelligent, and thoughtful. Among the works he's reputed to have read as a young man are the biographies of Napoleon, German Chancellor Otto von Bismarck, and Winston Churchill. While still at school, he also gets a reputation as a troublemaker, leading protests against British influence in Egypt. In 1937, at the age of 20, he joins a military academy. Along with many of his fellow soldiers, he keeps up an interest in politics, though he isn't affiliated to any one political party. As he enters the army, tensions across the Middle East are building between local Arab populations, the British and the Zionists arriving in Palestine. In 1949, the year after the first Arab-Israeli war is won by Israel, Nasser forms a coordinating committee for the Free Officers Movement within the Egyptian military. Our guest, Khaled Fahmy, speaks about the group and their rise to power. And they started plotting for uh, toppling uh, the, the regime, which is something they managed to do on the 23rd of July, 1952. Um, and if I may add, the, that particular plot had a lot to do with the Suez Canal, because throughout the 1950s, the early 1950s, uh, there is armed, Egyptian armed popular resistance against the 70,000 troops, British troops in the Suez Canal uh, region, uh, the result of which or culminated these clashes between Egyptian nationalists and the British occupying force um, culminated in an incident on the 25th of um, January 1952, when the British uh, troops encircled an Egyptian police force, killing 43 Egyptian servicemen. And when news of this massacre, as it was called, uh, reached Cairo the following day. It was called Black Saturday. All hell broke loose. The governments couldn't control the uh, the crowds. Four governments rose and fell in the period between January and July of 1952. It is this situation of instability that allowed the free officers to step in and stage what was really a bloodless coup on the night of the 23rd of July, 1952. The Free Officers intend to re-establish a parliamentary democracy. They are first led by a leader called General Naguib. Nasser at this time is heavily involved behind the scenes, but since he's only a lieutenant colonel, he thinks it's better to let his military superior step forward. In the years that follow, however, Nasser will consolidate his own power. Naguib is ousted in 1954, and Nasser eventually becomes chairman of the Revolutionary Command Council. In October of that year, he signs the Anglo-Egyptian Agreement with Great Britain, in which Britain agrees to evacuate the Canal Zone. Nasser dreams of turning his home country into a prosperous, industrialised nation. To ensure a reliable power supply, Nasser intends to dam the Nile, 
creating a high dam at Aswan. The regime presents this idea to the World Bank, which approaches the United States for financing. Initially, the US approves. This is one of the biggest economic projects on NASA's agenda, but in the background, land and economic reforms are also taking place. Professor Fahmy talks about the military and how Israel, which sees NASA's popularity in the Arab world as an existential threat, responds to developments in Egypt. The United States and the United Kingdom and France had come together and issued what was called a tripartite declaration, the aim of which was to limit the sales of arms to the Middle East um, and to maintain the status quo uh, after the 1948 First Arab-Israeli War. And the result of which was that the Egyptians uh, were, in, were unable to buy weapons from the West, whereas Israel had actually managed to buy significant amounts of weapons from France from the early 1950s. So there is a disparity, despite this tripartite declaration, the actual situation on the ground was that Israel had managed to buy significant more, significantly more uh, weapons than Egypt uh, had in this period, in the early 1950s. Um, there is also a serious problem in the uh, Gaza Strip between Egypt and Israel. Uh, the Palestinians, uh, Palestinian refugees uh, in, in Gaza were launching uh, raids inside Israel. The result is that Israel is also launching counterattacks, and one of these counterattacks was a serious uh, raid that happened on the 28th of February 1955, in which 38 Egyptian soldiers were killed um, and eight Israelis uh, were killed. This highlighted for Nasser uh, this disparity of forces between him and the Israelis and highlighted for him the dire need to buy weapons in order to address this disparity. Also, um, in the same time, actually a bit earlier, in the summer of 1954, Israel, seeing how successful the negotiations were going on between the British and the Egyptians, um, for affecting the evacuation of British troops, uh, tried to sabotage this. As a result, they hatched a plan, eventually known as the Lavon Affair, named after the, uh, the, the name of Pinhas Lavon, who was the Israeli defense minister, to it was a, a, a covert military operation, intelligence operation inside Israel, inside Egypt, the aim of which was to convince the United States and the United Kingdom that the new revolutionary regime is incapable of maintaining peace or protecting their interests inside Egypt. So they planted bombs, they, 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 they sent secret agents to plant bombs um, in American and British-owned uh, civilian targets, cinemas, uh, libraries, educational centers. Um, the plot was hatched, 
uh, the agents were arrested. Um, a number of them were eventually tried and executed. And uh, it was masterminded by David Ben-Gurion, who used to be the prime minister and eventually became the prime minister. This was um, a big scandal for the Israelis. Uh, it's known euphemistically as the Susanna operation inside Israel or the unfortunate affair. And again, it highlighted to Nasser the significant threat that Israel is causing to his regime, that the idea was he understood that there is an attempt to get rid of the new revolutionary regime with him at, his, uh, at its helm. The Lavon affair makes Nasser realize it's important to have weapons he can use to strike back. The pressing question is where to actually get the weapons from? The following year, in Britain, Prime Minister Sir Winston Churchill resigns. His deputy, Anthony Eden, who will become a key player in the crisis, becomes Prime Minister. Eden has already had a long political career. He was a cabinet minister in the 1930s, but he resigned in protest at Neville Chamberlain's policy of appeasing Mussolini. Later, Eden served in Churchill's government during World War II as Secretary of State for War. He has a good relationship with US President Dwight Eisenhower, and under his rule, Britain thrives with its lowest ever post-war unemployment figures. He's a very popular Prime Minister at home, but Eden's view of the situation in the Middle East is coloured by a dislike of General Nasser that verges on paranoia. In Nasser, Eden sees yet another dangerous fascist leader, similar to Hitler or Mussolini, and he's determined not to just step back and let Nasser simply take what he wants. In France, Nasser is also viewed with great suspicion. Nasser has given the Algerian independence movement his full support and the French, in both Algeria and in Paris, consider him a dangerous influence. So Israel, France and Britain have a common enemy in the general. And on his part, Nasser distrusts the Western powers. Khaled Fahmy speaks about the Baghdad Pact and the immediate background to the Suez Canal crisis, including Britain's desire to retain influence in the area and the Czech arms deal, which led to the United States pulling out of the Aswan Dam project. Britain wanted to maintain its influence in the region through uh, signing military pacts with its allies in the region. So the idea was to sign a military pact in what was called the northern tier of the Middle East, basically and specifically uh, from uh, east to west, uh, Pakistan, Iraq, uh, Iran, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. This was called the Baghdad Pact because it was signed in Baghdad on the 24th of February, 1955. Nasser thought this to be a very ominous sign. He thought that this is a way of the British to maintain their presence in the region. And the metaphor he used was, we kick them out through the front door and they sneak back in through the window. 
and he was determined to establish an Arab pact rather than a Western pact uh, using some uh, Arab uh, regimes in it, that is Iraq. And um, he, he also feared Jordan may be lured in. Then there was a, a significant conference held in April of 1955 in Bandung in Indonesia of Afro-Asian countries. These are 29 newly independent countries that were coming together at the beginning of the Cold War to say, we will not be dragged to either side of the Cold War. We have suffered enough from colonialism. We have a common future together that shouldn't be tied either to the Warsaw Pact or to NATO. Um, Nasser goes there and he is immediately hailed as a new voice, new power, um, because of his explicit support of independence movements, both in Africa and in Asia. And uh, he strikes a very strong personal uh, link with uh, Jawaharlal Nehru of India and, uh, and Tito of Yugoslavia. And uh, this is the beginning of a strong relationship that developed a few years later in the establishment of the non-alignment movement. In that, in that meeting, uh, Nasser approached Nero and Tito, Tito in particular, about the need to buy arms. And he said, the West is not selling me any arms. And he told him, well, why don't I introduce you to join uh, Lai of China, of communist China, who may be able to mediate with the Soviets. And through that complex link, the Soviets, a few months later, agreed to sell Egypt weapons in what was known as the Czech arms deal. It is Czech because it was Czechoslovakia that uh, ostensibly was uh, selling the arms to, to Egypt. And, uh, and that happened in September of 1955, and this alarmed uh, the West significantly. It alarmed the United States completely. It threatened Egypt to, to, um, to stop all military, uh, diplomatic and military and cultural activities, and even to suspend diplomatic relations. And of course, it alarmed Israel also very significantly, and especially uh, the prime minister, David Ben-Gurion. As a result of the Czech arms deal, the United States withdrew its approval to finance the High Dam on the 19th of July, 1956. It is that decision, the United States withdrawal of its approval to finance the High Dam that prompted Nasser to retaliate by nationalizing the Suez Canal Company, a company that uh, was primarily owned by British and French shareholders, but a company that he thought its proceeds do not go to Egypt. Uh, they go uh, to, these, to the coffers of, of Western investors, when in fact the company, the, the canal itself had been dug by Egyptian hands. Thousands of Egyptian workers had suffered and, and, and died digging it. The canal passes through Egyptian land, Egyptian territory, and the idea was to compensate legally 
and fairly the shareholders, but to retain the right to own the proceeds of the ships that pass through uh, the canal. These proceeds should go to the Egyptian coffers rather than to Western ones. And the idea is then to use the, the this income to uh, finance the high dam. The announcement of the nationalisation of the Suez Canal takes place exactly four years after the abdication of King Farouk, and it's made, theatrically, in the middle of a public square in Alexandria. It's broadcast live on the radio, and millions of Arabs receive the news with jubilation. Only three years earlier, the leader of Iran, Mossadegh, had tried to nationalise the oil industry and failed thanks to a coup d'etat organised by British and American intelligence services. NASA's bravery is applauded by many people among the third world, but it also earns him more enemies. President Eisenhower is keen to find a peaceful resolution to the problem and intends to organise a conference for all the maritime nations affected by the nationalisation of the canal. However, the British and the French decide NASA's move requires military action. Anthony Eden and his French counterpart Guy Mollet bypass both the UN and the US. Britain and France concoct a secret plan to retake the canal with the hope of also toppling NASA's regime. What they lack is a pretext, and this is supplied by Israel, who is seeking the right of navigation through the Gulf of Aqaba. The British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, came to see Nasser as a personal enemy, and he was obsessed by him in a pathological way. He genuinely believed that Nasser was another Hitler, Allowing the nationalization of the canal to go unchecked would be similar to appeasing uh, Hitler. The question was how to uh, stop him and how to uh, probably even depose him. France was probably the, the one country of the three uh, that hated Nasser the most and hated this particular gesture the most, the gesture of nationalizing the Suez Canal. The reason was because of Nasser's support of uh, the anti-colonial independence movement in Algeria. Now, the French had been in Algeria since 1830. In other words, for 130 years, more than 130 years, they considered Algeria to be part of France. And a, a few years earlier, 1954, um, an armed nationwide independence movement rose in Algeria that Nasser gave it its full, his fullest support, not only diplomatically and through public relations, but also militarily and financially. The French in Algeria and in, in Paris came to think that Nasser is the strongest, is the most important reason why they cannot control and subdue the uprising, the revolution in Algeria. And they came to think 
that only by deposing him would they be able to maintain their hold on their empire. So it is these three countries, once the nationalization of the Suez Canal uh, took place, they found in Nasser a common enemy. And the question was how to get rid of him. Initially, it was on its part, the United States was also opposed to the move, but it was trying to find a peaceful way of dealing with it by holding a conference, maybe in London, of all the maritime nations that benefited from the Suez Canal. But the British and the French had another idea. The British and the French, from the very beginning, thought that this needed military action, um, that uh, Nasser should not be allowed to get away with his bold move, and the only way to stop him was militarily. The question was how to do this. They decided from the start not to go to the Security Council of the United Nations and not to seek its authorization. They also decided not to seek the approval of the United States. And they started meeting together <clears throat> to see how to coordinate military plans to really invade Egypt, control the Suez Canal zone, and topple the Nasser regime. But the main thing was that they are, were lacking a pretext. So herein comes Israel. And it is a fascinating story, uh, really. It is a, the classic conspiracy. Now, in the Middle East, you hear a lot about conspiracy theories. But this is not a conspiracy theory. This is actually a conspiracy. This is an actual conspiracy. In fact, this is the mother of all conspiracies. The conspiracy was hatched uh, first the conspiracy was hatched on the 14th of October in Chequers, which is the country residence of the British Prime Minister, Anthony Eden, uh, when on that day, the, um, a, a French general, General Maurice uh, Charles, who was the, the deputy chief of staff of the French armed forces, he presented the plan after consulting with the Israelis. And the plan went as follows that the Israeli army would attack the e Egyptian army in Sinai and thus pose a threat to the Suez Canal. And this would be taken to be the pretext, the much needed pretext that the British and the French needed to then interfere ostensibly to separate the combatants and uh, protect the Suez Canal uh, from this danger establish an occupation in the Suez Canal zone, and then topple the Nasser regime. When Eden heard of this plan, he was beyond, uh, he was beyond glee. He was so beyond himself with glee, hearing uh, the details of the plan. He then sent a delegate to Paris the following week, to iron out the details. So uh, the British, the French, and the Israelis met in secret in a small villa in Sèvres to the north of 
of Paris. The invasion becomes known as the Second Arab-Israeli War, or the Tripartite Aggression. In military terms, it's a success. On October 29th, Israel begins the invasion, attempting to seize control of the Mittler Pass. On November 5th, the English and French launch their assault on Suez. Suspecting that the true reason for the attack is to replace his regime, General Nasser pulls his forces back to protect Cairo and Alexandria. However, before they leave, they sink 40 ships laden with cement and block the canal so their opponents can't use it to transport military supplies. On November 6th, the United Nations calls a ceasefire. By this point, the Anglo-French forces have nearly captured the entire canal. Politically, it's a train wreck. The Soviet Union reacts angrily to the French and British presence in Egypt, demanding that the two European powers leave the canal zone immediately. The UN is alarmed, and President Eisenhower is also angry at the decision to invade, and imposes economic sanctions on Britain. Soon enough, a, an Israeli mechanized brigade raced across uh, Sinai to reach these troops. Um, at the same time, Israel, uh, sorry, French supply um, uh, airplanes were flying out of Cyprus to um, supply the Israeli troops with food and ammunition, and more than seventy. French planes were stationed in Israeli air bases to protect Israeli airspace from any supposed or expected Egyptian uh, attacks by the Egyptian Air Force. When the Egyptian government refused the ultimatum, the uh, timeline, the, the plan went into operation and the, the British and French uh, carriers moved closer to the Egyptian shores, and the uh, they started bombing the Egyptian air bases both in Sinai and in the mainland. The result was the destruction of 240 Egyptian planes. Basically, the Egyptian air force was knocked out <clears throat> of the uh, of the uh, of the battle. And then on the 5th and 6th of um, November, paratroops started landing in Port Said and uh, bombing the cities, the city. Um, on its part, the French managed to control Port Fouad, Fouad which is the, the town across Port Said, across the Suez Canal in the east, in Sinai. And Nasser, when he realized that this is not just a small border skirmish with Israel, but this is a full-fledged attack, and when he realized that the, um, the British and the French are also attacking from the north, he realized immediately that this is, in fact, a conspiracy. This is not just a coincidence. This is a pre-planned attack. And he thought that the Egyptian army, which had been putting a very strong resistance, both in the Mitla passes 
30 kilometers, 30 miles east of Suez, but also much, much further east along the borders with Israel, he realized that the army can be sandwiched between the Israelis coming from the east and the British and French landing in the Suez Canal uh, region. So as a result of which he ordered a withdrawal of the Egyptian army from uh, Sinai in order to protect Cairo, because he realized that this is not just an operation limited to protecting the Suez Canal. This is an operation, the aim of which was to topple the regime uh, in Cairo. So he needed to protect Cairo. He also feared that maybe, especially with 1882 still in mind, maybe there will be an amphibious landing in Alexandria. So he needed also to protect uh, Alexandria. In both the Labour and Conservative parties in Britain, there's a lot of unease about what has happened. Eden denies all knowledge of conspiracy to the House of Commons in December, saying, On the question of foreknowledge, and to say it quite bluntly to the House, that there was not foreknowledge that Israel would attack Egypt. There was not. However, he's widely disbelieved. He resigns the following month and is succeeded as Prime Minister by Harold Macmillan. The British and French withdraw all of their troops by the end of 1956, and Israel withdraws the following year after successfully negotiating to keep their right of navigation in the Gulf of Aqaba. Eden's French counterpart Guy Mollet survives longer than Eden, but his government collapses in June of 1957, buckling under the economic pressure of the French-Algerian War. Anglo-American relations are frayed in the wake of the crisis, but a chastened Great Britain continues to cooperate closely with the United States. The Suez Canal crisis is positive in many ways for the Soviet Union. Leader Nikita Khrushchev manages to successfully distract the world from the uprising in Hungary, while at the same time strengthening the Soviet presence in the Middle East. It's the Soviets, in the end, who finance General Nasser's High Dam, which is constructed in the early 1960s. Anthony Eden wanted the Protocol of Sevres to be completely destroyed. But parts of the French version of the secret agreement are found in 2002, and images of the pages are published in 2010. The original is believed to be kept in Israel in the Ben-Gurion archives. Our guest, Khaled Fami, talks about the ultimate legacy of the crisis. The idea is, from that time onwards, that for that, um, Israel did gain something very significant, which is the free navigation of, of, of ships through the Gulf of Aqaba. And U.S. pledge to uphold this right. Uh, but more significantly, on the long run, Israel learned a very important lesson, which is never to collude so blatantly and bluntly with uh, superpowers, and never to be allowed, never to be forced to relinquish diplomatically what they had won militarily, which is a lesson that was implemented very, very successfully in the following confrontation with the Arabs 
1967, when Israel launched an attack on Egyptian and um, Syrian and Jordanian forces, uh, not by colluding with the Americans, but by reaching a tacit, subtle understanding that the, that the, uh, that the Americans will not force them to relinquish their um, territorial gains diplomatically after they had won them militarily, which is what we have till today. Uh, so that very strong understanding between Washington and Tel Aviv uh, has not been broken since 1967. So, uh, so this is one of the lessons and one of the, uh, that the Israelis learn from Suez. As far as the United States is concerned, it basically made it clear that it now is the main superpower. It with the Soviet Union, uh, they are now the big boys on the block. They will not allow the British and French to act in the 19th century fashion as if they still control the world. And they elbowed them out and basically were saying, uh, we are the masters of this region from now on. As far as Nasser is concerned, of course, he was the biggest winner. He uh, took a gamble and it succeeded. And he managed to uh, prove that a third world leader can in fact stand up to the old imperial powers and get away with it. The Suez Canal crisis can be seen perhaps as a harsh introduction to the new world order for Europe's old imperial nations a sign that the time of colonialism had well and truly ended. But the influential countries that dominated the world prior to World War II never go away. In the latter part of the 20th century, they continued to adapt to changing global politics, to tensions in the Middle East, and to the emergence of nationalist movements in other places around the world. The continued existence in 2022 of organisations such as NATO and the UN demonstrates the continuing importance of international alliances and diplomacy, both in Europe and beyond. Thanks for listening to Since the World's Been Turning. I'm Robin Harrison. A very special thanks to our guest, Khaled Fahmy. Sultan Qaboos bin Said, Professor of Modern Arabic Studies at the University of Cambridge. Thanks to Will McGillivray for the introduction music and to our writer, Elena McPhee. Please join us again next time as we continue to explore the people, events and places behind Billy Joel's iconic song. We're discussing Little Rock High School in Arkansas, which becomes famous after President Eisenhower sends the Air Force in to enforce the law around desegregation. For more episodes and information, you can follow NZ Pods, that's P-O-D-Z, on Instagram and Facebook, or you can visit our website, www.nzpods.com, that's nzpodz.com. Giving us reviews and ratings on your podcast service helps us share this project with more listeners, so please share your thoughts. We greatly appreciate your help in keeping this project going. Thanks again for listening, and please come back next time to hear more from Since the World's Been Turned.